mornings a week, we meet before breakfast for an early morning run. We spend most of our time planning and reflecting on what's happening in our classrooms. This has become our favorite professional development. So we figured, why not share these moments with you? Welcome to Math Before Breakfast. This is episode 38, and... Ruth, you got one more week to go to go back to school, right? Oh, not even a week. Okay. I just have a couple days. But yeah, it is coming. Yeah. Well, I have been back and my all all teachers are back too and we start school next week. So, like real school. And so this episode is going to be kind of tying up a lot of loose ends, right? We right. Um, are going to talk about two questions that we got that kind of go hand in hand. So we're going to answer them together. And then we're going to finish talking about statistics, which has been one of my favorite episodes so far, the one we did recently, 37, right, about statistics. Um, so we're going to wrap that up and then also talk a little bit about algebra um, and what that looks like in the elementary school and middle school classroom. And then you're going to hopefully throw in a book that you have started to read, right? Right. Finished reading. On that list, the five practices in practice and... As much fun as reading all this, all these books this summer has been, it's just been like PD overload. Yeah. And I need to have some time in my classroom to like practice one thing before I just add another thing. Right. Yeah. Almost what? like I'm a little bit scared to go back to school because what if I forget something that I read and which one of these things do I pick and use the very first day? It's just. Yeah, it's just PD overload. Yeah. What were you going to say, Jay? I was going to ask what list that book is on. Oh, the one that you can find on our website. I don't think that one is. Yes, it is. This is the five practices, and you may have put the five practices on there, and this one's called In Practice because it's for the middle school classroom. So so in an earlier episode, I made a list of the books that I wanted to read, and okay. we did link that so episode. That yeah. So we'll put okay. link it again so that now we know what book our, – our wish list, summer wish list. It's uh, not on list. the reading list. Right. It's on a different list. We've got all these lists. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's let's start off with our two questions that we okay. got, right? Right. Um, the first question we got was from Monica, and she asked, I wonder if y'all could do an episode over your best teacher moves using the low floor, high ceiling tasks to meet the needs of all of your students. Maybe share your favorite task or something. We just started back today, and we are being challenged to individualize instruction, and my facilitation left a lot to be desired last year. I've done a lot of summer research into setting up better group work norms and creating a safe academic environment, but I'd love to hear from veteran teachers. So, I had a question real quick. Yeah. This, this teacher said this has really nothing to do with pedagogy or teaching. Okay. It's a, it's a comment that right now it is August 8th. Yeah. And... I saw a bunch of my friends who either are teachers or have children who started back to school like this week or even the end of last week. Yeah. Some people in my class, they're, they're already actually teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, whoa, I thought Lynchburg went back early. Yeah. That Man, some of these places are going back darn near the end of July. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the thinking is behind that, but it's I, I don't know. I've noticed a lot more this year than, than normal mm-hmm. that it was just... Some people really early going back. Yep. So the question basically boils down to 
what does the high floor, high, <laughs> high ceiling, low floor thing look like? I think really about the differentiation piece. How do right. we do that? And then Adina asked another question, um, a different question. Thinking about using, or she's thinking about using the sieve of Eratosthenes with her fifth grade to find all prime numbers to 100. How could you suggest, how would you suggest incorporating in a way that is consistent with the ideas presented in Becoming Math, the Tracy Zager book, which was a great, a great question. So both of these are great questions. So this morning we, we were, as we were talking beforehand, um, thinking about how we could, because these questions could be connected, like this could be the task that we could talk about, Correct. low floor, high ceiling. So we started by thinking about how we've done it before, which right. go ahead, tell you talk about that. So the sieve of Eratosthenes, how you've right, that. You find this little cute video on YouTube and this little man tells you about the sieve of Eratosthenes. And as you're watching the video, the students cross out the multiples of two and the multiples of three and the multiples of four and the multiples of five and six and seven. And when you're done with typical, I think in the video, he only does two, three, five, and seven, because those are the only ones that are necessary to have a hundreds chart with all the multiples marked out and the prime numbers left over. Right. And so now, having read these books, and she's right, Tracy Zager's books, how do you take that task and turn it into something that's meaningful, that's low floor and high ceiling, and how do you present it in such a way that they have to discover it right. rather than you say, let's watch this? Yeah. Um so the question that we asked ourselves that now I'm realizing we ask ourselves all the time as we're do trying to do this process is what's the context? What context could we give this that would walk them into doing the same thing that happens in the mm -hmm. sieve of Eratosthenes? So I um, thought of the locker problem, which um, we've talked about the sub sandwich problem before. I think the locker problem is a kind of a common task, problem, whatever, that lots of people do in lots of different contexts. And I, a professor had just mentioned it to me before. So now I'm really curious because after I think about what context would I want, my go-to is go to Twitter and type in hashtag MitBoss. Mm -hmm. And maybe I would try Civa Veritostenes. Yeah. And see if the locker problem would show up. <laughs> um not having a computer in front of me, but that's where I would go next mm -hmm. because Tracy and I aren't together every hour of the day. And sometimes I have to do this <laughs> by a myself. few hours that we don't hang out together. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So in the locker problem, I, I might get this wrong, but in the locker problem, all the doors are closed and, and somebody comes by and opens every single locker. And then somebody comes by and changes. Shuts all the even ones. Right. And then somebody comes by and changes all the multiples of three. So if it was open, you close it. If it was closed, you open it. And then you are trying to figure out what would happen at the end. So you, you, Whoa. yeah, you end up talking about how, how things are overlapped, right? With, mm -hmm. When, in the same way that the Civ of Eratosthenes has things overlapped, like and by overlapped, I mean, has the same factors. So we were like, what if we simplify it so that you ha still have a hundred lockers and there's a two key, a three key, a four key, and those will open those lockers. 
and the and there's no closing of lockers it's just opening mm-hmm. and then the the um like the task is to figure out which ones are closed even after the person uses their key on the twos right. and the threes All the and the fours are used and you could make it kind of like where should you put your stuff so it doesn't get stolen you know you could add a little bit of element of Right. Interest that way, because then there's motivation to figure out the prime numbers. And so then we talked about how you could provide opportunities. Yes, here's a hundreds chart and these could be your lockers. But in my situation, I have a hundred lockers in the hallway. So if you want to go in the hallway and you want to do this in the hallway, you can do it there. Here's a hundred chips. If you want to number them one to a hundred and sort them in some way, but the idea is that these are all the different things that you can use. Mm-hmm. You pick what you want. And then what about the kid who's already done this and takes the hundreds chart and circles the prime numbers? Oh, yeah, like the kid who's seen it before. Right. So where do you go with that? That's probably the differentiation key. Right. And I think the differentiation, I would say, what if you had 200 lockers? Yeah. And um, what what keys could you do this with and still get the same answer using the least amount of keys? Yeah, which is going to lead you to the fact that you don't need the four key or the six key. That Those are really useless because you've already opened all the multiples of two. Then also all the multiples of six and eight and ten are already open mm-hmm. too. Um. I think, I think by, so to answer Monica's question, one of the ways that you differentiate this is by allowing there to be different tools available mm-hmm. and allowing them to self-select the tools. And I, I was thinking back to this Graham Fletcher three-act task that I did, and it was about tiles, and and it had like a plus-shaped table, and you were trying to figure out the area of this whole table, and daggone if I didn't have this one group of boys that was like, we're going to build it. We're, we're just going to build it. And they literally <laughs> made it on the floor the the entire size of what they saw in the video. And at the time... How did they make it? It's little square foam tiles. Yeah, the square foam tiles. Okay. Like they, I guess they counted how far it was from this end to this end and then this end to this. They didn't really build build it out you know but they were building the length and at first i was like rolling my eyes like come on guys think you know think abstractly here but i been learning to like let it happen and maybe if as you let it happen some of those discoveries were going to be made however it turned out to be really cool that they built it because the whole class ended up using their model to continue the discussion about what was hmm. going on so I think a lot of times when you're doing something like that and you are you can only think concretely like your brain hasn't gotten to the abstract level yet all you all you can comprehend right now is the is the concrete like your students you know building a mock-up of this table on the floor that before you finish the concrete task the the abstract part of your brain starts yeah like i several times have started working on like either a problem that you've given me or you know something that i'm just trying to figure out and i will start you know with a drawing or you know something that's not using algebra or not using some formula and before i finish i think oh wait it's like in, in my brain processing the concrete, it either reconnects to 
you know, prior knowledge, or I just see a shortcut or, or something like mm-hmm. that, that it gets me to the abstract thing that you were trying to get your students yeah. to. Which is why going back to yours, allowing them to have access to the lockers, like that's maddening to me to think about like numbering every locker or whatever, but they, but some kids need that. And, mm-hmm. and, and just like I said, they would come to, they'd make some conclusions. And their were... patterns would be really different. I mean, we know that the patterns for the twos on a hundreds chart are vertical lines and the threes are horiz- are diagonal lines. Yeah. But when you have just of course, two rows that. of 50, those patterns are going to be completely different. And you might even see oh, something. You have top and bottoms. Yeah. Cool. So just giving them that opportunity. Yeah. You know, you're right. It would be maddening. And probably by the end of the day when I'd done it five times, I'd be like, Okay, no one can do the lockers. <laughs> and besides, everybody stuffing those lockers would be all over the place. Yeah, if they're using the real keys. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I'm curious, Ruth, this book, that the Five Practices book that you have started to read, like, does that inform any of the low floor, high ceiling? And and make sure you name it and who the author is. Okay, so this particular one that I'm reading is the Five Practices in Practice middle school. So Peg Smith and Miriam Sherwin, Sharon, sorry if I said your name wrong, um, wrote five practices. And then this was a continuation. I listened to her on making math moments. Thank you. Making math moments podcast where they interviewed her prior to Maybe this middle school book had just come out, but she's also in the process of putting out an elementary version and a high school version. And what made this one really cool was that she got into teachers' classrooms and you have access to the videos watching them use these practices. And a little bit on her background was that she was a teacher and she ended up writing a book about how she taught because this is what she did. And she used these five practices. Um, So the first one, well, there's really six practices. One of them, listen, she called it making it explicit. She was given that by a student of her book who said, I really feel like one of your one of your practices should be setting goals and um, selecting tasks. And she said, well, that's, you have to do that before you start the first practice. And her student pretty much said, we'll make the implicit explicit. Uh, And so she named it practice zero. Because it has to happen before all the others. Yes. Okay, cool. So it's five practices. Anyways, so you're going to set your goals. You're her first um, practices to anticipate the student responses. And for me, that is really where I was challenged because it's so much pre-thinking before you are in the moment. Yeah. But when you're planned and prepared, you really can do this more effectively. And so I'm thinking about this particular task and I'm anticipating what those student responses would be. And probably for me, as I'm planning this, I would 
especially now since you said the locker problem is out there, someone has journaled about it. Someone has written about the mistakes that students have made. And I want to be ready for those mistakes to happen in my class. So the NCTM book you mentioned in the last podcast that Mm -hmm. has case studies in it, the videos in this book, personal experience because you did it this year, what, you know, those are the kinds of things that you just want to note in your plan so you're ready to address them. And um, so you've anticipated them and now your students are um, crossing out the multiples of two or they're in the hallway opening and shutting the lockers. So are these practices specifically for math teachers? I mean, is she writing it for math teachers? Um, Yes, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, that part is really good understand is good teaching that anticipating student responses. Yes. Yeah. Right. I was, I was thinking we were, we were taught that, you know, as a music teacher, you, you go through a score and you find the spots that, you know, students are going to struggle with either because of, you know, something, how the music's written or, hmm. or whatever. That was one of the things when we were taught to rehearse an ensemble, be it a, a choir or a band or whatever, you find the parts that before you even introduce, you find the parts that, you know, they're going to struggle with. And, you know, either not necessarily start there because that's usually a more complex place, but know that that's coming and prepare for that and, and you know, plan to spend more time there or break those sections up so that you're not doing all of those in one day or mm-hmm. something like that. So I, th- I think it was interesting that hmm. I, I was just wondering if, if, yeah, I mean, because that sounds like a good idea in general. Well, we, as she keeps talking about it, we should think about that, yeah. whether they're, right. whether they all apply to other subjects. Good point. So, her second practice is to monitor. And I know that in the past when I've put to get put like a lot of time and thought into a task, there's this temptation to just kind of stand back and watch this beautiful lesson happen in your classroom. Uh-huh. But if you haven't identified what the problems are going to be, you miss them. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they haven't met your goal at all. And this beautiful planned out lesson is like, what in the world? <laughs> yeah. Why did you not get that? And yeah. so practice two is to monitor it. It's where you walk around and she talks about having a goal sheet in front of her where she's listed the goal and she's kind of assessing their understanding. Where are they in achieving that goal And choosing her questions, because there are two kinds. There are the questions that assess, what do you know? And then there are the questions that help you move forward. Oh, okay. Okay, so you have advancing questions and assessing questions. Hmm, I like Um, that. And you're keeping track of where they are, so who needs that next advancing question? Do you write those questions down ahead of time? Um, Probably. I don't know. Yeah. This was like the short summary kind of thing. But you would want to definitely think about the questions you're going to ask based on that. And she also talked about what do you say to a kid who isn't started? Yeah. And she made the point that if they're in their desk and they have this hundreds chart in front of them and they're just kind of staring at it and don't have. She said teachers are sometimes tempted to say, well, why don't you go over here and work with Sam? Uh Uh-huh. And, or, well, why don't you just do this first? And in reality, she says you should ask a question like, um, I'm trying to make it for this one, but 
tell me what you think you need to know about the lockers. What other information can I give you? Okay. And make them create the question that they don't know, when in reality they would probably ask a question and realize the answer is in front of them. Hmm. So in her example, it was a um, counting principle. No, yeah, counting principle, like tree diagram kind of question okay. thing. Yeah. And she just said, tell me what you need to know about the T-shirts. And the student was like, I need to know what colors there are. Well, that was the whole premise of that question, how many different outfits can you make? And so she was able to just get him started because yeah. she let him choose the question he had. And then she was able to assess his understanding based on what he did rather than his understanding because I moved him over to a group where someone had already done it. Right. And just said, okay, we've done this. Come on. Mm -hmm. So as you're walking around monitoring, you're also picking the solutions so you're, and we talk about this, Yeah, you're finding out ways that it says, choose the solutions to share that highlight the math ideas and help achieve the goal that you set out at the very beginning. Right. Okay. Um, once you've chosen your solutions, then you put them in a coherent um, storyline because that's the whole purpose of it. And the two guys who were interviewing Peg in this talked about how they used to just say, okay, everybody's going to share and kind of go just in a circle. Yeah. And the person that you really wanted to highlight because of something they did, even if it wasn't exact, doesn't share that anymore because now the five people in front of them have said the right thing. Hmm. So yeah. picking the order that they want to share is important. And that, that was a big change in my teaching, like when I finally realized that. And it's been hard, but it you know, you're right. Because if you, if there is a kid that you've observed as you're monitoring that has something that would really move everybody's understanding forward, if you wait till it just randomly gets to them, everybody might be over it by that point. You know, you have a, you have a limited amount of time that they're going to follow you mm -hmm. and choosing that order is, is And valuable. if you've highlighted or the very first kid is like, Ex right on and says exactly what you want them to say it's really hard to go back oh yeah to the kid who yeah. got it almost right and show something like a different way of thinking or the kid who did it concretely you know and everybody's going to be like well duh we already figured that out right yeah this kid has exactly right let's see how you did it yeah <laughs> yeah um and then finally that whole group time after you've chosen those solutions, because she talks about that sometimes you don't have to wait for a whole group to highlight someone's understanding. Like if I see your group doing something completely different, maybe I would say, hey, look right here. Look at what he's doing and highlight this work. So then you can then maybe take a little of that back to your group. But so then just highlight it for a small group of kids. Correct. Okay. Um. And then practice five is taking all of those student solutions and connecting them all for them. Like, what did we learn today and how does this help you? And if I gave you the number of 237, what could you do based on what we did today to understand if it's prime or composite? Yeah. You know, now you have a strategy 
you could say, would the two key open it? Would the three key open it? Would the five key open it? Would the seven key open it? Mm -hmm. And figure out whether or not that number is prime. I mean, you might have to go higher than that too, but yes, I followed you. Right. (laughs) Um, I was just thinking of that, that example of, you know, stopping before large group share time or whatever to bring something up. And I think, I think I've seen that done just this past week. I was at a conference and yesterday morning we were in a conference session and it was, you know, like the, the main plenary speaker or whatever, but we were in a room of about 150 people and he broke us up into groups. I was in a group of six or seven and, you know, we were looking at different sets of questions that he had handed out and he walked around, which is first thing. It's kind of, I don't know when you guys are doing this, do the students keep working when you walk up to watch them? Mm-hmm. Because yes. he walked up to watch us and we were like, just looking up at him. And he was <laughs> like, I'm just a fly on the walk. He went, and, you know, and he kind of called us because we were, we were done talking. We were talking about something else at that time. <laughs> but he did also was talking to a group and did that same thing. Stop, he, he would get everybody's attention and focus on a question. And I think it was less to answer their question. And more because it was a point that they were struggling with that he wanted everybody to know about. Like he wanted everybody to have that same experience of struggling with this question or or seeing this question because we weren't all looking at the same questions. Mm, okay. Like we were looking at us, we were looking at the first four, and this set of groups was looking at another four. And when something came up that he thought like this is this is a good a good struggle. What do you call that word? Productive struggle. Productive struggle. Um, or something that he really wanted to focus on later, he would stop and bring everybody's attention to it because he, you know, basically I want, I want everybody's brain to have this. So that when I talk about it later or that when I'm, you know, trying to make a point on this, everybody's had a chance to see it. So whether, whether he was trying to solve their problem or just put this in everybody's conscious, I thought it was, it was interesting how he, how he did that. And then later went through and, and he did, he did something similar. He started and he said, you know, what questions in this set did you struggle? Like, what was the one you struggled the most with? Yeah. And he knew which he knew which ones. <laughs> he knew which ones that people were going to struggle with. And he had like... Because he had anticipated. like Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he like had backup and, and research and, and something to go to kind of reinforce his answer to whenever anybody... Because, you know, this is a room full of 150 college professors. They're going to want to know why. Yeah. Um, and it was just interesting how he, how he had done that and, and used a lot of these things. Cool. So we really appreciate these two questions. They've led to some cool discussion, right? And right. this it's not over. Like, this is something we're still trying to figure out, too. And so we'll keep thinking about it and, and think about how, how you do the part of differentiating a task, but still let everybody sort of be on the same task. And I think a lot of that has to do with... What tools, like to summarize, what tools you pick, doing the anticipation of the high and low, but maybe thinking of the questions and thinking of how you're going to record things as you go through, um, thinking about how you're going to order the sharing part and being like goal oriented with something kind of a new thing from, I mean, I, I knew that, but I like how you're thinking like your recording sheet would be have the goals on it. So it gives your objective or your essential question or whatever the buzzword is in your school this year. <laughs> Meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Instead of this is on the board because someone told me I had to write it on the board. Right. Now I have 
a purpose for it being there because you know what our goal is and this is how I'm going to get there. Yeah. Well, I think we've answered your question, Jay. I mean, you answered your question in, is this just for math? I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. Yeah. I think these are I mean, just she gives good. good. She's given math examples in, in hers and you're right. talking math examples, but. Oh, I know what the last one was, is making sure you have some supports in place for kids that you know are going to struggle, like have those questions ready, like you were talking about, Mm -hmm. framing it so that they're going to ask a question back to you, and then also having the the next level of challenges ready um, is the other thing that helps you. Because we talked about the students who would already know it. Right. All right. That was good. Thanks for those questions. Um, So we said um, in a recent episode that we were going to finish talking about statistics. Right. And I know, right. (laughs) I I will not, I will not share every single thing that I learned, (laughs) but, um, but as I went back through, there was one more big idea here. Um, And that was the describing a distribution of a set of data. Okay. And we're talking about numerical data here. So this would not be a process you'd put on bar graphs because the shape of the data doesn't really mean anything because it's not ordered in a bar graph, like from left to right, like numerical data would be. But this would work with line plots, histograms, stimuli plots, box and whisker, all of those formats that we talked about last time um, are numerical. So the our professor gave us this acronym, CUSS. C U S S. She thought it was really funny when she said it. <laughs> Jay shaking his head. Um, but these are the ways that you describe a distribution. Okay, and so this and you know a mnemonic device is helpful to because it helps you not forget something. So the center stands for like so C stands for center, and so you could be talking about the mean, the median, and the mode. So if you're looking at a set of data, that's one thing to describe about it. Um, and I think we mentioned this last time, but really understanding the idea that the, um, mean is not resistant to outliers. So if you have an outlier in a piece of, in a set of data, it's going to pull the mean towards that outlier. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some really cool things you can do with that. Like here's a set of data and now throw in an outlier and see what happens to the mode. And that sounded very like scientific. The mean is not resistant to outliers. Yeah. Do you get it, though? Oh, I understand it completely. Just the, the terms, it sounded very yeah. highbrow. Thanks. Like, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Highbrow. Thanks. Um, but I also, uh, when it comes to this, I'm guilty of like, oh, today's the day that somebody told me I have to talk about mean, medium, mode, and range. Let me tell you what these are, and we'll sing our little song that we've t- learned about it. And, you know, this is how you calculate it, and let's just calculate it. Well, make going through this made me realize, like, based on reading a lot of the cases, was you don't have to start there. You could start with some data that you've collected and then talk about how can we describe it? What is a, what number would we give to a typical student? You know, what, like they, they can start to look at the picture of the data and kind of come up with those Mm -hmm. ideas, you know? And I, and I feel like, um, mode is probably where they go first. Like as after looking at all these, reading the cases, like which one is most, which one is, is the tallest, you know, in a, in a stack right. is where, is where they, 
go to. And then in the cases I watched as teachers kind of like tried to move them towards an, another another measure of center. But mode is the one that you can easily see, yeah. which is why they're going to go there first. Yeah. So Even then without knowing it's the mode, they're, you know, going to say, I see a lot of twos. Right. Yeah. Um, and this was kind of a duh statement for me. I should have known this, but I didn't. So I'm going to say it to for the benefit of Jay, a prophet, and Thank anyone you. else who doesn't know it. But if you have a bell curve, you know, which, you know, goes up and comes back down at the same rate, then your mean, your median, and your mode are typically all the same. You already knew that. Uh, well, I don't know that I would have stated it that way, but it makes sense knowing what a bell curve is and what all those yeah. things are. Because your highest point is also in the middle, and then then that's where your mean would be too. Um, so then the, F, the U stands for unusual features, which were gaps, peaks, and outliers. So mm-hmm. where do you have holes in them? Um, where do you see the peaks? And that's where you can get that word um, bimodal, like if there are two modes, trimodal, three modes, you know, unimodal. Whoa. I never knew that's what bimodal meant. Yeah. What did you, where have you heard that word? This past week. Really? Yeah. I didn't know what they were talking about. Nice. But because I don't know, I didn't know what they were talking about. I also don't remember the context. <laughs> they were saying. But they said something about a bimodal something, something. I'm like, yeah, I never, well, I never, I never connected it to being two modes in a set of data. Yeah, and you might, you know, it might be like just two peaks in the middle, but you maybe have two peaks on the end too. Yeah, you know, um, and then and then if it was constant all the way across, there'd be no mode, right? Uh, well, and then unimodal, unimodal would be one. Yeah, uh, omnimodal. There we go. It's um, all a mode. Okay. I don't. I don't know. All a mode. I don't know. I don't know. That, <laughs> I don't know that that's a real thing. So don't oh go my gosh! Did we just find the title for I this? I think one? so. <laughs> a la mode. That's funny. I was, yeah. What? I was just being funny. I yeah. don't think it's a real thing. Yeah. I didn't take the statistics class. Right. In case any of you were wondering. <laughs> um, and then outliers. We talked in the last one about how to one formula to find if something might be an outlier. Okay, so then the shape of the data, we talked about skewed left or skewed right. And I think you told me that you hadn't you didn't hadn't heard those yet. So skewed right. So you think about like, okay, picture you've got a bell curve, right? Well, then if you had some outliers on the right-hand side, which are going to be the bigger numbers, it's going to like pull the tail out to that direction. That's called skewed right. If you had outliers on the lo- on the left side, which would be the low numbers, it's going to pull the tail out to the left. That's called skewed left. Is it moving the whole bell or just the <laughs> or just the tail? Just the tail. Okay. Like, so your skewed direction is where your tail is headed or where your outliers are. Okay, but skewed right or left doesn't shift the whole bell left or right. No, it doesn't. Okay. It but it would it would pull the mean in that direction. You know, Hmm. Um, but that's an important thing to talk about, like, because, you know, oh, we have a we have these few outliers that are really high or we have these few outliers that are really small. You know, that that tells a story about your data. Um, And then finally, this the last S was standing for spread. And so you the the two types of spread or ways to talk about spread that we heard were. Um, the interquartile range, which we talked about last time, and then just the range. And the, my main learning about that was that if you have an outlier, 
it's better to use the interquartile range because otherwise your range would be like inflated, you know? Correct. Um, if you have a bunch of outliers. So Ruth's eyeballs were telling me that that information was riveting <laughs> just then. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but here's the point of why I would even bother saying this to a podcast of people that are teaching middle school or elementary school. If you're having good data discussions – you might not put the word cuss up on your board. and Prob That's probably a good idea not to ever yeah. put the word cuss up or on your board. Or maybe you would. I mean, we've used some mnemonic devices, mnemonic devices that were like funny in that way. But, but you might try to keep track of on your own, have we talked about center? Have we talked about unusual features? And if we've spent so much time talking about center, then how, what kind of questions can you ask to draw them towards some of those other ways oh, to describe good. distribution, you know? So even if you're just mentally or even – I would have to write it down, but like sorting student statements into those kinds of categories, then it would help you move towards, oh, we haven't done this at all. So any other thoughts about that? I don't no. think so. No. Good stuff. Okay. So let's switch over and talk about some of the big ideas from my algebra class. Okay. I'm um, excited about this. Good. All right. So the book that we've been working – we've been working from two books, and we'll add them to our summer reading list. One is called Connecting Arithmetic to Algebra, Strategies for Building Algebraic Thinking in the Elementary Grades. It's by um, published by Heinemann, and the authors are Susan Joe Russell, Deborah Shifter, and Virginia Bastable. And the other book, and this is the book, so that's the book I'm going to talk about most. The other book that we used is another um, case book, uh, the DMI, Developing Mathematical Ideas, and it's called Patterns, Functions, and Change Casebook. And actually, it has many of the same authors, so now that I'm looking at it. So, um, in the, the big idea in this connecting arithmetic to algebra book is that we want to help students understand the, the operations deeply, adding, subtracting, okay. multiplying, and dividing. You want to, you want them to really understand them because a lot of their mistakes come from just applying, um, algorithms with no understanding of the actual um, operation. So part of understanding the operations fully is developing generalizations about how they work. And then if you can develop generalizations about how they work, then you can use them flexibly and fluently to do computation, right? Mm -hmm. And, okay, so... In the past, that's looked like us standing up there and being like, this is the associative property. This is the commutative property, you know, but that's so not the point. The point is that you're supposed to make these generalizations and then rely back on the commutative property and the associative property and maybe name them in the process. So um, when you come to – we've talked about before, like, developing conjectures, right? right? Which is where you – a kid is like, oh, I think this is the case, Okay. So I, th I think that I'm, – and I'm adding this own piece in there. I'm thinking that a kid throws out a conjecture. You say, ooh, that might be right. Let's write it on the board as – let's name it a conjecture until we, until we know for sure. And then if, if it's something that's true, you're going to want to work towards making it a generalization, which is where we, like, agree upon that it's true. Right. And so there are these levels of, of proof. The first – it's called the higher, hierarchy of proof. The first level is an appeal to authority. So that would mean um, 
that you just say it's true because some authority said it was true. So let's walk. We're going to walk an example all the way through. And that is an odd number plus an odd number makes an even number. So let's say a kid goes, whoa, look at this. I've realized that everything we have on the board are odd, two odd numbers being added and all of them give us an even number. Okay, right now it's a conjecture. Um, somebody could say, I know that's true because I read it in my math book. I know that's true because last year's teacher told me it's true. I know it's true because mama said it's true. Whatever. That's the <laughs> that's the appeal to authority level of proof. Okay. Then the second level is examples. So a kid could say, I know it's true because we did five examples here and they're, it, it's true for all of them. So it's true. When do, when do examples like really decide that that's true? So the answer is never. In math – there is no amount of exam- number of examples that proves to you that it's true. That's well, how an- do you prove something? The third level. Good question, well, JJ. Done. Thanks for walking right into my trap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here, but here's the thing to understand: is that if the if you find one example that doesn't meet it, then it's definitely wrong. You only need right. one to prove it wrong. You there's no amount that will prove it right. So then you go to a representational proof, okay? Represent or a representational representation based proof, I guess is the right way to say it. So you need to go dial back to the structure of the operation and the structure of the numbers to prove that it's true. Now you said all that. You, like it well, was common sense. Okay, but well, I don't know I'm now means. I'm going to explain. The, I'm going to do it in the context okay. of this of this odd plus odd. Okay? okay. So, what do we know about odd numbers? They are not divisible by two. Okay. What else do we know? There's always one left over. Right. When you put them in groups what? of two. Oh. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So, what's going to happen? Let's picture any odd number and any odd number, some number that we haven't named. What's going to happen when we put them together? You mean that they're going to make an even? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, but how? Like, what can you pick? Can, do you have some picture of an odd number? So the one left over from each group are going to go together and make a group, right. and they're not so leftovers you're not have anymore. A leftover group. Yes. So what you've just done is sort of started in the direction of a representational based proof. You need to either then draw it, like think of a way that you could draw it, so that you could show that this is always going to work. Um, or think of a story. A story context actually works as a representational-based proof. So like the story one could be um, your class has an odd number of kids in it. There's always one kid left over. Your class has an odd number of kids. There's always one kid who doesn't have a partner. If we put our classes to those two classes together – then those two people find a partner, it makes an even number because everybody has a partner. So that story context is is an example of representational-based proof. Hmm. Um, but like the one I've done in my class is to represent an even number by pairs of snap cubes. Right. So you're putting two snap – you're like having two columns of snap cubes and then the odd number has one more on the top. Mm-hmm. And – Yes, you can show like if I have this, I picture it like a puzzle piece. Like I have, um, let's picture like two columns of three and then one more on top over on one side and then two columns of four and one more on the top. They could fit together and those two left out guys would go together to make a pair. You following me? That's That right now is using actual numbers. But if you were to like cover up the bottom 
of your columns, so you can't see how many are there. It's not. It's no longer a a seven and a whatever five or something. It's just some odd number and some odd number put together. That's can you represent that? Sometimes they'll draw like a a, a Z or a, mm-hmm. or a, what is is that got a name, guys? I don't know. We but would have expected you to know it. But through well, <laughs> through um through a line or through a, a bar to show that. You're missing some in here, and they're not showing it to scale so that you can see detail. Better. So in our class, yes, I think I think that would work. In our class, we use three little dots and ellipses to to more often to do it. Okay. So you might draw your your stack, and somewhere in the middle of your stacks of two, you would just have dot dot dot. So it's no longer individual pairs of numbers. Okay. So we were we were taught to use the ellipses a lot in the in the representational based proof, and then the for, the final one is algebraic proof. So. You would say um, that's when you t- when you use variables only, and you can prove this whole odd plus odd equals an even if you assume that you know an even number is written as two n. So right, I was just gonna say n plus one. Mm-hmm. Yep, plus n plus one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always equals two n. Yes, two n plus two, which in the two oh. itself is even. Right. Yeah. So that's the that's the final version. But in elementary and middle school, we don't yeah, typically I try get. That. Yeah, I mean, you, it's not it's not inaccessible, but we don't generally I get start there. there. Right? Yeah, sure. So um, the other thing I wanted to say was the the qualifications that makes it a representational based proof. Like, how do you know it's actually it, you're met that that quality? So there's three characteristics of that. One is that. Whatever you draw or or describe actually shows the operation. So if okay. we were talking about the odd plus odd, whatever they draw has to show these two amounts joining because they're adding together. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're doing one that has to do with multiplication, you've got to have the jumps of or the rows of or the groups of somehow that kind of thing. Um, the second one is that it accommodates a whole class of numbers. So if you that means like it can apply to any, all the numbers. All right. So if you ju- if you stuck with, look, here's what happens with three plus five. That's not accommodating a whole class of numbers. You've got to add the three dots or talk about it in. If I have some, you know, talk about it in more general language so that it applies to all of the numbers. Yeah. Um, and then the final one is that just that the conclusion follows that whatever you represented matches what the generalization that you started out to do. So I'm still thinking about how, you know, would I teach my kids those three qualities or would I just, would it be in the back of my head to keep asking questions to get to those points? That's where I would be leading. I mean, I feel like you would overwhelm them yeah to here's your stipulations you've got to get all the way to this level i think it would be that whole assessing and advancing questions and Mm -hmm. so the your goal is in the back of your head i want my students to know that this is true and so here's another question that i'm going to ask to get you there Mm -hmm. like like we've worked only with specific numbers so far i might ask does this work for really big numbers? Does this work for any number? And start them down the path of describing it in a general way. Mm-hmm. So it meets for any class. Does this work with negative numbers? 
numbers. Exactly. So or that's imaginary numbers. Yeah. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly like as we learned this, this that was towards the last couple lessons. When you said classes of numbers, is that like I'm gonna show my ignorance of what the different okay. types of numbers are, but you said has to apply to a class of numbers. So can you make one of these that only applies to whole numbers as yes. opposed to integers? Yes, like prime definitely. composite numbers. Okay. Prime composite numbers, those rules and that prime factorization that you use prime numbers for doesn't apply okay. to integers and to decimals because a prime number has exactly two factors. Well, you can get three by saying two times one and a half. Gotcha. That mm -hmm. makes it not prime. So you have to classify that, that prime numbers are whole numbers with exactly two whole number factors. Gotcha. And I was thinking about like... Something as simple as multiplication makes numbers bigger. That's a generalization that you would want kids to. This is a touchy subject, but you'd say, want kids. Want yeah, you'd want kids to say that, but you'd want them to come to the point where they realize that generalization only applies to a certain class of numbers. That that applies to whole numbers only, because as soon as you throw in a fraction or a decimal in there, it it doesn't, or or a fraction or decimal smaller than one. Um, so they kind of reframed that discussion for me a little bit, you know, like you're, you're just at a the certain point in your understanding and then you like the sixth grader, you know, teacher could, or I guess really it's fifth grade at this point, the mm -hmm. fifth grade teacher could sit, could point out what's happened. You made her generalization, whether or not your teacher called it that you made a generalization, but we only made it for this class of numbers. Now we have to expand our generalization to, now that we know more classes of numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if I, if I had to do fourth grade over, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be in the, in one classroom this year, but if I had to do fourth grade over, I would take this and just start listening for generalizations, you mm -hmm. know, listen, especially for them during number talks. Um, and then ex not explore them every single day, but sometimes pick ones that I think would help kids understand the general, understand the operations better or understand the, some kind of strategy that would help them be more fluent in their computation and then explore those every once in a while. Um, I have in our class, they provided this whole list of generalizations. So I will, I will offer oh, those. Cool. Um, another example is like had the having and doubling strategy comes from a generalization and the generalization is, um, in a multiplication expression, if I multiply, I'm going to say it algebraically, if I multiply one factor by N and I multiply the other factor by one over N, I still get the same product. So if you're thinking specifically, if I multiply one of those factors by two and the other factor by one over two, which is half, you're going to get the same number. Gotcha. So we did a lot of, like, that's one of the ones we had to prove and draw a picture. How would you draw a picture? So that, that, that could also be third and tripling. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or any number, like. Yeah. Fifth and quintupling. Exactly. Yeah. I think you should call it that instead. Okay. <laughs> All right. Any thoughts? <laughs> you guys are giving me a hard time. That's awesome. I I don't have any, I mean, it's good stuff. Yeah. I feel like it's good stuff for teachers 
to know, mm-hmm. not necessarily that you're, that's going to be your goal for a child to know that today they're going to make a generalization. Mm-hmm. But like you said, if you are paying attention and doing the monitoring you have to do, you're going to be able to find those generalizations and mm-hmm. then present them to the class and make that part of your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I will, we've kind of been giving a, like a little, you know, what do we think about these books? I think that that book that I, do you have it over there, Ruth? Do you still have it? couldn't see it um the one connecting arithmetic arithmetic to algebra you're gonna have to be committed to read it it's it's thick like it it, i mean it's not actually physically thick but it's it is it's you know very detailed dense dense dense. there you go um like heart of darkness but if you want to really understand the no not like that if you want to understand the the operations better and i mean i think if this is something you're interested in this would be a great book for it but it's not like a easy summer read <laughs> um it might also have to do with the fact that i was reading it every night after class starting at like 8 30 um but there's cases woven in there's lots of models it's a great it's a great text to explore this idea of generalizations and proof the other one the case book this book i think helped me um understand you know what linear functions are um quadratic functions exponential exponential functions like this is a good place it has tasks in it but then they explore tasks that could could help you with the background knowledge so like Hmm. if i was going to start teaching i don't really know the order of what goes after sixth grade but you know if i was going to be like you know if i was going to be Teaching seventh or eighth grade math, and I was like, "Yikes!" I'm, you know, kind of need a refresher on the content and and a refresher on like how to make it conceptual. Mm-hmm. This would be a great place. Like I was told you recently, like look at what I figured out because of the context. You right. know, these equations that I can write now because of the context. This would help you sort Come of develop develop those ideas conceptually. So. That's what I got to say about that. I think it's time for takeaways and for Ruth to go get some coffee. <laughs> so who has a takeaway? I don't know that I have a single takeaway, but statistics is not something that I would, if somebody asked, what do you enjoy doing? That would not be one of the things I say on my list. But I do enjoy understanding how, not numbers like whole numbers and integers, but how statistical numbers and how you know things are are used and looked at and applied and and I, I enjoy kind of understanding more of the math under under some of the the things that I've always enjoyed looking mm-hmm. at I've always enjoyed looking at um you, you know when people have data that they're using and representing and I've I've always been pretty good at following that right but to see the underlying math and how you know some of the building blocks to that has been has been interesting cool good you have a takeaway just that i have like way more now i'm thinking about oh generalizations i have Uh. to listen for those when i'm you know the first day of school and i'm gonna be like no wait i gotta do this right we gotta do this over um so I'm excited to sit down and let you be my coach and plan <laughs> uh-huh. my first three weeks of school. Like, one, no pressure. Which one of these huge takeaways from yeah. the summer? Yeah. I mean, I'm almost like scared to start listening to my our podcast again 
because that's the recording of how I taught it and where I taught it. So what was good and, you know, yeah. I've never been one of those teachers who keeps their lesson plan and just pulls it out and redoes it. Every yeah. year I just start with a blank slate. Yeah. And so in order for me to repeat something, it had to have been really good yeah. for me to repeat it. Because you had to have remembered it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not and just... if I can't remember it, they're yeah. not going to remember yeah, it. that's true. So Tracy, I... do you have a takeaway? Well, I was just going to respond to oh, okay. Ruth's takeaway is that like, don't be scared. I don't know. Like, yes, I get it that there, we've talked about so many things and you want to get it right, but you're not like, just like, just let that go. We're right. not, we're not well, going to get it you right. Tell, I don't even remember which one of our guests you told. You can't do everything, but you can do something. Right. Yeah. And so I just need you to tell me which something. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully we're going to be and talk about that this weekend. Uh, that's our goal. Um, my takeaway is, I think probably very small. I think that there are, there are certain teachers that I've worked with already that are ready for this, like ready for framing the conversation in the generalization context and, and, and understanding that idea. And so I don't, I just am trying to encourage myself to not scare, like shy away from that in working with teachers. Some teachers are going to be like, don't come into my room with that mess. Like, <laughs> holy cow, no. But there are some teachers that are ready. Like the teacher that I talked, Hannah, that we had on here before, you know, we we spent a lot of time talking about having and doubling. And when she gets to that point in the year, she could reframe it as a generalization. Like, let's put up these pairs of expression, these, these pairs of equations that model it and then see if they can name it and then talk about why and prove why it works. You know, that's another way to frame that discussion. So, um, I'm hoping I get a chance to use this with somebody or, you know, watch somebody's number talk and then say, do you know what they were using there? Can we, can we go back and explore that a little deeper? So there's excitement for this coming year. Yeah. Well, I, uh, would just like to bring up, um, some ways, I think it's been interesting lately to that we've had started having people asking questions or giving yeah. feedback, or and I think as we as we start on a second year of this, we can do a lot more of answering questions mm-hmm. and and because you know I'm not going to say it's not like we're we're not going to be covering different issues or different you know topics from a second year, yeah. But I would I would like to see more of the answering questions and interacting and being able to help not just what you two are doing in class, but yeah. what other people are doing in class. That's and cool. you can do that by checking us out either on Facebook <laughs> or, you know, these two tweet all the time. I am not on the Twitter very often, but yeah. they are pretty consistently checking out, you know, the math stuff. And hopefully if Adina uses this sieve of Eratosthenes, she'll reach out to us and say, it worked and this is how I did it and kind of create that whole case study then yeah. that someone can listen to the podcast and read that cool. and then have the questions to go through the five practices. I mean, that's what teaching is all about. Yeah. And I love it. If you've been listening to this podcast and don't understand what the sieve of Eratosthenes is, because both of these ladies say it way too fast without a break, <laughs> that was, it took me half of the podcast to know what you were saying. I thought it was just some crazy Latin word that I never heard of yeah. before. Then you can see our uh, episode notes on the website, mathbeforebreakfast.com, because sometimes you hear something and you have no idea what they're talking about. And that's the way to find some, you know, better description or better uh, explanation of what 
or just, you know, what a word is that they say to dag on fast. Yeah, that was really smooth there, JJ. You, you worked that in well. I have to tell you something funny. Ruth, I'm going to tell on you, oh <laughs> which is that last week you talked about that squiggly line above a above a, oh a, a number or a letter, whatever, tilt. Tilda, right? Well, Ruth, <laughs> she sent me the show notes. And she was like, I can't find it. I can't even find it Googling it. So we had to Google it. I to... spelled it A-T-I-L-D-A, like Atilda. Atilda the Hunt? <laughs> and then I spelled it <laughs> T-I-L-D-A. And both of those are words, but they don't have anything to do with what you were talking about. And then, So how do you spell it, Ruth? T-I-L-D-E. Yeah. She just texted the word back to me at a <laughs> random time. And I was like, oh, I guess she saw the show notes. <laughs> All right. It's been fun. That should have been the name of that episode. What? A Tilda the Hunt. A Tilda the Hunt. Yep. All right. It's been real. Thanks, guys. I'll see you on a run next week. All right. All right.